right, if you'll open up in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 1 again. We'll be finishing chapter 1. You guys got to buckle up because we got a lot to cover in a short amount of time. And so as you are turning there, let me remind you of kind of where we are this week. Beginning in verse 18, uh, it's, it's all connected. Really, you have the salutation in the beginning where the Apostle Paul is sending his greetings to the church. And he immediately, as we saw last week, began to talk about the fact that this is a church that has division. And they were divided over things that really kind of seem silly on the surface when you look at it because they were kind of debating and they were taking sides basically with the preachers or the leaders in the church that really just kind of resounded with them. There were some that put more focus on the law. There were some preachers like Paul that put more focus on liberty and freedom. And there were some preachers that just really spoke to the needs of the intellectuals and those that were seeking wisdom in the room And the church began to kind of separate. They began to take sides for one simple reason, and that is that they were more concerned about the messenger than they were the message. Folks, it's the message that draws us together as believers in Jesus Christ. The power of God unto salvation is not Hepzibah Baptist Church. It's not the preachers of Hepzibah Baptist Church. It's not the missionaries of our International Mission Board. All of these people that God may or may not use in various and sundry ways. Listen, the power of God doesn't rest just on the messenger. The power of God rests in the message that they are willing and able to go speak. Romans 1.16 says it this way. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the very power of God unto salvation to those who believe. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. And what Paul is trying to remind us, that if we're going to focus on something, don't let it be on other men. Let it be on God. Let it be on God's wisdom and God's message and what God has given to us so that we can see people saved. I would dare say that the reason we don't see more salvations, that we don't see more people whose lives are being transformed, the reason we don't see revival and spiritual awakening breaking out around America, it is really very simple. It's because we have caged up the gospel. We don't mind saying come to church. We don't mind saying you ought to see the ministries that we have. You don't mind saying, hey, you ought to come. You'd like to listen to our pastors. We don't mind saying, come to our connect group. It's a great place where we have great fellowship and we just do life together. We don't mind saying any of those things, but it gets very different when we have to leave this room and boldly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. When we really take the gospel message to the world, it can be difficult because we know that the world may try to reject the message. But folks, if we don't speak the message, there is no power for people to be saved. Faith comes by hearing, last time I looked. And hearing comes by what? The The Word of God. There's a Chinese tale about a young man, and it's kind of a a good little story. He captured a tiger cub. As you can imagine, when it was small, he had no problem keeping up with it, and he kept it in a cage, but as time grew on, obviously it got bigger and bigger and bigger until it was a full-grown lion. 
As he kept it in that cage, there were many of his friends that would come around him as he got older, and as the lion or as the tiger got older, they would come around him, and he would brag to them about how ferocious and how powerful his tiger was. But his friends just looked at him, and you know what they said? They said that that tiger isn't wild anymore. His friends scoffed and said, he's as tame as an old house cat. And that went on until a wise man, his grandfather, was sitting there and he looked at those other young men. And these are the words that he said to all those young men. He said, there's only one way to know whether this tiger is ferocious or whether it's not. He said, why don't you open the cage? The young man smiled and put his hand on the latch and challenged his friends. So who wants me to open the cage? You see, the truth is, I wish we would see the gospel that way. That if we would simply unleash it and let God do what he does through his word, if we would find the courage to believe that we hold the answers to all that is killing mankind, to all that is destroying the lives of people, that is destroying our world. Our greatest need is forgiveness, and there is no forgiveness outside of us speaking the name of Jesus. There is no other name in heaven, on earth, under the earth, by which men must be saved except the name of what? Jesus. And so why have we kept the gospel caged up? Why is it that we can put a chicken dinner on and we can have hundreds and we can do missions and have three? We can play basketball and have hundreds, but we can gather to pray for the lost and have 20. There's something wrong in the way that we perceive what our calling is in our life. You aren't just called to come and take up space on Sunday morning. You have a mission. You have a calling, and that is to lift high the name of Jesus, to make much of Jesus, because until we speak his name, nobody is going to be saved. So Paul is basically saying, listen, we are the messengers. I'm a messenger. Simon Peter's a messenger. Apollos is a messenger. But don't attach yourself to us. We're just messengers. He said the message didn't come from us. It's not our message. We aren't wise enough to come up with the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God has done for us. There's only one thing that you should do. Realize that this message came from God and attach yourself to him. And let the message of Christ transform your life. Let me read to you this word. And I'll tell you in the beginning, that's why I said we're going to have to buckle up because it sounds more difficult than it is when you read it. If you'll slow down and hear it and really pay attention and listen to what I'm about to read, you can see exactly what he's getting at. It's just a little bit more wordy than probably other places that we've been over the last few weeks. I want you to listen closely to these words, and I think you'll see it. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Let me say that another way. That word there is logos. Think about John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, logos. And the Word, logos, was with God, and the Word, logos, was God. It's the same word there that it says that, listen, preaching Christ, It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, 
It's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, the Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, Not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ. Or in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Three important questions that we're going to answer today that I believe this text answers very clearly for us if we can just slow down, read it, and see it. Number one, I want to answer the question, why is the cross considered foolishness? You see, he says that the gospel of Jesus Christ, preaching the cross of Christ and Christ crucified, it is the power of God unto salvation. But you have to understand that as we preach that message, not everyone will receive it. Now, that shouldn't shock us, right? When Jesus himself walked this earth, there were many that rejected his message. There were many that, you know what, when he preached who he was as Messiah and what he would accomplish, there were some that wanted nothing to do with him. When he would proclaim the truth, there were many that would reject the truth. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to come to grips with the reality that not everyone is going to accept the gospel, but we still have to preach the gospel whether or not they accept it. That's not up to you. That's not up to me. But our faithfulness is. And we don't know who will receive the gospel. We don't know which hearts that as we send that seed of the gospel out, some of it will find fertile soil. We know that others will find soil that is is thorny and, and some that has rocks and some that is so hard that the word of God can't penetrate those hearts. But it's not up to us. Our sole task is to do what? Scatter seed. Tell the world. Preach the gospel. Tell of Christ crucified. Because people will consider it Foolish, And the reason they consider it foolish is very simple. Jesus spoke to it. The apostles spoke to it. The writers in the New Testament spoke to it. The reality is people want to reject the gospel because it takes the attention and control away from themselves. The gospel can be so hard to receive. I remember the first time that I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, I didn't immediately want to receive it. I've known many men who are now strong believers in Jesus Christ, who are following Christ, that rejected Jesus in the beginning because, you know what, they didn't want to get to the place where they felt like they have to answer to another. 
They didn't want to get to the place where they felt like, you know what, my salvation isn't dependent upon me. They would have rather stood before God and said, God, give me what I deserve. Don't ever ask that of God. What we deserve is death. What we deserve is hell. What we deserve is damnation because of our sinfulness. And there are people that still are all around us and they don't want to receive the message of the gospel because it says to them, you know what? You can't save yourself. You're not good enough to save yourself. And they say, but listen, isn't there a big scale in heaven? The good outweighs the bad? No, 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 no. That's worldly wisdom. That's things that man comes up with. To believe that somehow the law can save me. The whole Old Testament, you know what it screamed to us? That the law can't save. You can't obey your way into a relationship with Jesus. The law was given to you not to show you how you can be saved as much as to show you that you are a sinner who is in desperate need of being saved. It all ends up back at the same place. That without Jesus Christ, you can do nothing. Without Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without Jesus, of Christ, there, without Jesus Christ, there is no hope of a transformed life, of, of being able to be changed. Folks, all the way back in the garden in Genesis 3, we began to see this take shape. Where we didn't want the attention on another, we wanted the attention on ourselves. All the way back in the garden, we see where man tried to gain control over God and God's plans and God's desires. And we wanted not just self-glory, we wanted God's glory. We wanted to decide in that moment what was good for our life. That's what Adam did. And, and folks, it's not just Adam. That is what all of us have chosen over time to simply decide for ourselves what we think is right, what we think is good, what we think is holy. We want to decide the rules. We ultimately, we want to be God and the gospel is an affront. Simply because it says, you know what? You're not God. And you need God. It demands that we see our sin and our hopelessness. I think it's interesting when you look at verse 18 and 19, he says that the cross is foolishness to those who are unsaved. It means what he's saying is, listen, they're blind to truth. They are living in darkness. And whenever you try to shine light into the darkness, they don't want that light to be shined in there because when the light shines in, it shows us who and what we really are. And it says that when Christ shines light, we want to scurry. We want to run back into the shadows rather than letting him deal with us and mold us and shape us. And so we come to this place where we realize that it demands that we see our sin and our hopelessness. And, and it's interesting, verse 19, it says, he, he's given us a verse that's out of Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. And it's interesting when you look like, why would he choose that verse here to say that, you know what, it's not about man's wisdom. God is going to set aside man's wisdom. Man thinks he knows. Man thinks he understands. Man thinks he's better than God. And God is up there saying, listen, that is not so. And I'm going to continue to show you that that is not so. And this verse comes out of a time in Israel's life where the Assyrian army was coming to attack Israel. 
And if you remember, God was still trying to give them a chance to repent. By the time we get to the prophet Isaiah, God says, listen, it's done, it's over, you're going into exile. But at this point in their history, God is still trying to give them a moment, an opportunity to repent of their sins. And he sends the Assyrian army. He had been telling them, if you keep worshiping false gods, if you keep living in sin the way that you are, if you keep choosing your way over my way, and that you think you're right and you think I'm wrong, I'm going to turn you over to your sin. And worse than that, I'm going to put you into exile. And the Assyrian army comes. And as they're beating down the doors of the cities of Israel, Israel has a choice. They can turn to God or they can rely on their own wisdom. And rather than turning to God in repentance, rather than asking God to save them the way that he had over and over and over, you know what happens in Isaiah chapter 29? Literally, rather than turning to God, they turn to Egypt. Who is Egypt? It is those that at one time enslaved them. They were, I mean, it's a picture of just going back to what you know and going back to what you believed before and just say it's the children of Israel always doing the same thing. We were better off back then than when we're better off now following God. And they wanted to go back not realizing there's nothing there but death. There's nothing there but suffering. There's nothing there but slavery. And rather than turning back to God, you know what they did? They made a treaty and a pact with Egypt. And why would they do that? Because in their wisdom, they thought, we don't need a God in heaven. What do we need? We need an army on earth. We need soldiers. We need weapons. If we're going to survive, forget about God. How are we going to survive? And the reality is they forgot the most Simple, basic truth that all of them should have remembered. That, you know what, there is no army greater than God. How many armies does God need to defeat the Egyptians? How many did he use the first time? None. He defeated them with plagues. He's put them out in the middle of a sea that had been divided divinely. And when the army got in the middle of the sea, he drowned them. When they were facing a walled city, God said to them, you know what, you can use your own wisdom and go fashion a bunch of weapons or do whatever you're going to do. But remember what God said, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk around the city, take some lamps, take some jars with you, walk around the city a bunch of times. At some point, I want you to break the jars and yell at the top of your lungs. And when you do that, guess what? I'm going to hand you Jericho. Does that sound like man's wisdom? But we serve a God. Do you know how much he needs our armies? Not a bit. And see, every day we have to decide. We, we live in the same moment that they were living in then. When life gets difficult, when life gets hard, when we begin to struggle in our sin, and when we begin to struggle with our own selfish ways, we have a decision to make. Will I, will I trust and rely on myself or God? My wisdom or God's wisdom? Will I do it my way? Or will I believe that God's way is best, even if it doesn't make sense to me? That God's wisdom is greater than mine. See, for us, we're not facing walled cities. We're not facing armies. But you are facing marital issues. Many of us in this room are in a rocky marriage, a depleted bank account. Maybe it's endless hospital bills. Maybe it's an immoral relationship that you found yourself in. 
Folks, there is only one person that you can turn to for help, and it's Jesus. And anything and anyone else will disappoint you. And I believe that's exactly why he put it here. He said, listen, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. If you try to do it your own way, I promise you it won't succeed. Thirdly, it makes us choose between a theology of glory or a theology of the cross. That's why people consider it foolish. is because it lays before them a choice. We would rather have the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. The theology of self-glory, here's what it is. Most of us in this life, we just want to be rich. We want to be cool. We want to be beautiful. We want to be successful. We want to be powerful. And we want God to do all of that in a relationship with Him. We look at him and we say, God, this is where my joy will be. God, this is the life that I want to live. God, you are here to bring me glory, so you do in my life exactly what I want you to do. And if you don't do it, guess what, God? You're not worthy of my faith. You're not worthy of my trust. You're not worthy of me placing my hope in you. You do this for me, or else I'm going to see it as a complete betrayal. And Jesus is up there going, listen, that doesn't work that way. You don't get to determine what your life will be and then say, have enough faith and God will come in and do it for you, right? You know what faith is? Knowing who He is, knowing who you are, knowing what He has called you to do and who He's called you to be, and believing it and obeying it, accepting it, living it out. We don't get to decide what our life will be and then place our faith in God. We listen to what God says we are and who we are. And then we believe and place our faith in him, and we follow him. And let me tell you something. He's not interested in your self-glory. I'm sorry to break that news to you. Nowhere in the word of God did he say, listen, follow me and you will not have trouble. He said the exact, exact opposite and then looks at you and says, will you trust me? In this world, you will have trouble. Not you might, not you could. In this life, you what? Will have trouble. But he says, listen, don't be afraid. Don't get discouraged. Why? I've overcome the world. The only glory that he's concerned with is his own glory. And we live our lives to bring God glory. We were created from the very beginning to glorify Him, to be made in His image, to represent Him in this world, to the ends of the earth. And so He determines who we are and how we act and what we will do with our lives and how we'll bring honor and glory to Him. So I want to ask the question of you, have you let go of your own self-glory to pick up God's glory? How much of your life is lived for you and how much of your life is lived for God? And see, we don't ever stop and think and we don't realize that we make that choice over and over, day after day after day, moment by moment by moment by moment. And we want to say that we're following God, but our life exhibits that, you know what, we're not. And we want to reject this message because we want a theology of self-glory But we have the glory of the cross. 
that stands in a direct contradiction to all of man's philosophy, education, and knowledge that this world has to offer. The preaching of the cross means that not only was Christ crucified, but I've been crucified with Christ. The theology of the cross is seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and God will take care of everything else. See, we want to do it the other way. God, you let me take care of everything else and I might get to your kingdom and your righteousness. Are you really following Jesus? Have you really received this message of the cross? Folks, I can tell you this. The message of the cross neither flatters human beings nor presents God in an easy, easily palatable form. When he calls a man, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, he bids him to come and what? To die. Secondly, who struggles with the message of the cross? We see why the cross is considered foolish, but who struggles with the message of the cross? He's going to pretty much say everybody. Now, number one, he says it in verse 18 very clearly. He said it's that the cross of Christ, the message of the cross, is foolishness to those who are what? What does it say in verse 18? To those who are perishing, those that are lost, those that are blinded. He says that the world sees it as foolishness. Nobody would have ever invented salvation through a crucified Messiah. That God would take on flesh, would dwell among us, would live a perfect life, and then that the King, God Himself, who is taken on flesh, would then die for humanity, be buried, and raised again from the dead. I mean, is that what you would have thought up if you had come up with salvation? No, no, you'd have done the scale. You'd have come up with some way to justify your sin or to act like it never happened. We would have avoided punishment and just said, God, just wink at sin. That's the best form of salvation I can think of. Or better yet, let me keep doing it and you just act like I'm not. But that's not the God that we serve. Our God is holy and our God is just and our God is righteous. And he won't wink at sin and he won't act like it's not happening. He will punish sin because he is good and he is holy and he is just. And you say, well, that's not the God I want to serve. Well, listen, that's the only God there is. You don't get to decide who God will be. You don't, I mean, listen, are, are we any different when we say, well, that's not the God that I want to serve, even though the Bible says it, I just don't believe it. Listen, what you're doing is you are fashioning an idol that you can worship that looks more like you than God. We have to accept God for who he is. And what he has revealed about himself and what he has revealed about us. And he says, listen, for those that are perishing, that's foolishness. Listen, they, they can't accept a crucified Messiah. I'm going to be honest. I can't picture a more beautiful thing than a crucified Messiah. But God had to open my eyes to it. Open my heart to it. When I think about a crucified Messiah, you know what it makes me think of? It makes me remember the fact that God loved me so much that he would give his son so that I could be forgiven and set free. A crucified Messiah means 
That God didn't leave me to my own devices. He didn't leave me in sin. He didn't leave me without hope. But he said, listen, I love you so much, I will demonstrate it to you. And that while you are still a sinner, you are ignoring me. You are avoiding me. You are stiff-arming me. You are acting as if I don't exist. You are telling me that I am wrong. You are acting as my enemy. Even though that is where you are at this moment, I love you so much. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to die for you. And open a door for salvation if you will believe me. He says, the Jews, why are they struggling with the message of the cross? He says they were constantly seeking signs. You see it where he says, where's the wise man, the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. He says, for the Jews, Jesus became a stumbling block. What that means is they were struggling to believe the message of the gospel. Why? Because they were looking for a sign. They didn't want the Messiah that God gave them. And what is crazy is this is the God, God, I mean, this is the Messiah God promised them. Psalm 22 gave them the most beautiful picture of what would happen to the Savior, that he would die this death for us. Isaiah 53, we see the suffering servant, this one who would come, who would be Messiah. He would lay down his life for sheep, right? We'd gone astray and our stripes, the wounds that we deserve, the beating is what it's saying, that we deserve because of how we've broken God's law. He says it won't be placed on you, it'll be placed on him. But yet when they saw a suffering Messiah, they rejected him. He wasn't what they wanted. What they wanted was a God who would give them signs and prove himself to be the Messiah, that he would overthrow Rome, that he would overthrow these governments, that he would overthrow the economies and bring back riches and power to Israel. And God had to look at them in Christ and say, listen, I am not concerned with Rome. I am not concerned with your riches or your success. I am concerned with the fact that you stand before me condemned. I want to bring you salvation. I want to change your heart. But they were much more interested in God changing everything else. Now, folks, before you judge them too quickly, how often do you pray that God will change everything else in your life but your heart? Change my spouse, change my marriage, change my kids, change my fortunes, change my success, change my business, change this, change that. God would say to you, listen, you're spending a whole lot of time praying about things that, yes, I understand the importance in your life, but they're not what I care about the most. What I care about the most is you, your holiness, your joy, your peace. All that I want to give you, you won't find in all these things. You will find in walking with me. So the Jews are struggling because Jesus wasn't the Messiah that they wanted, that they thought he should be. How could this one who is ending his life upon a cross possibly be God's chosen one? What kind of king is this? So the cross to the Jew was and still is to this day a barrier to belief in Jesus. Even with Isaiah, even with Psalm 22, even with all the verses and the prophecies that God had given, they missed their suffering Messiah. 
They saw one who was meek and lowly, one who deliberately avoided the spectacular, one who served, and one ultimately who died on a cross, and they couldn't accept that that was their king. And he also said to the rest of the world, the Greeks, the Gentiles, as the Scripture puts it over and over, he says that the gospel was foolish because they only seek wisdom. To them, they thought they knew God, and they thought, you know what, the gods exist in another realm. The Greeks had many gods. And what they believed was that the gods that they had had no apathy. Or, I'm sorry, they, they well, I guess that's probably the best way to put it. They, they had no apathy, or they had apathy towards humanity. They were sitting there, and when you think about what apathy means, it means that there's really no concern. And they looked at the gods and said, those gods that they serve, they don't have concern for humanity. If they had concerns for humanity, they would be like humanity. And they put this gap between the gods and humanity. They never could have conceived that God could come to earth, that God could take on flesh, that God could be incarnate. Everything about the cross, it stood as an offense to the Greek mind because you know what? They thought they knew God and they thought that they had come up with who God should be in their minds and they rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. A God who suffered to the Greeks was a contradiction in terms. For God to involve himself in human affairs, that he would speak to man, that he would know man, that he would die for man. They didn't believe that. They believed that God by necessity had to be utterly detached from humanity. To the Greek mind, the idea of the incarnation, God becoming man was revolting. And the Greeks loved their philosophy. They loved wisdom. They loved to debate about knowledge. They loved to listen to their well-spoken speakers. And when they looked at the Christian preachers, they said, wow, what a dull message. What a simple message. They looked at those who would bring the gospel to them, and in their minds, they thought these are simpletons. These are just these humble folks. To the Greeks, humility was something. To the Romans, humility was something to be rejected. They considered their message blunt and crude, uncultured. They laughed and they ridiculed at the Christian preachers. They thought that the Word of God wasn't sophisticated enough by the world's standards. They couldn't believe that, you know what, God has done it all and all we have to do is place our trust in Him. There's a man by the name of Celsus who was one of the great attackers of the church. He was so bitter towards the church and he wrote over and over about the church. Here's what he said about Christianity that really summed up the Greek point of view towards Christians. He said, let no cultured person draw near. None who are wise... None who are sensible. For all of those kinds of people, the church counts as evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in common sense and culture, if any is a fool, then let him come boldly to the church. They looked at the church, and you know what they saw? Exactly what Paul would say in verse 26. He says, consider your calling. There aren't many of you in the church, he's saying, that are wise according to the flesh. Not many that are mighty, 
not many that are noble. It's not saying that the rich weren't saved. It's not saying that there weren't people in the church that by worldly standards were powerful. What he was saying was that on average, most of the people that were in the church weren't those types of people. That as you looked at the church, indeed, they seemed simple. And even in the minds of the world, it looked worse. You know why? Because they looked at the church and they said, it's full of prostitutes. It's full of demon-possessed people. It's full of tax collectors. You see, what they did was they looked at the church and they said, what a bunch of nobodies. I want you to hold that thought. Because I want to answer the last question. What will it take for others to find salvation? Number one, we have to preach Christ crucified. That's what he said in verse 23. He said, it doesn't matter if it's a stumbling block. It doesn't matter if they see it as foolish because they want signs or they want this type of king or that type of king. It doesn't matter if they don't think you're wise enough. Preach Christ and Christ crucified because our calling is that we must preach the cross. And folks, I'm going to tell you, it's not going to be popular. It never has been. It takes all of our wisdom and all that we would want to take credit for in our life, our good works, and it puts it to death and it stomps it into the ground. And then it's put on a cross where Jesus says, now whatever you are, it is because of me and my wisdom and what I've done for you. That's a hard place for many people. What it takes to find salvation, the gospel has to be preached. How will they know unless someone tells them, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. There has to be preachers. There has to be people who are sent. That is you and that is me. But for the people listening to the message, they must recognize their humble junkyard beginnings. Let me tell you what I mean when I say that. It's verse 26 when he says... And I told you to hold that thought. There are not many who were wise according to the flesh or mighty or noble. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. You know what God is saying there? He's saying you've got to remember that God is such an artist that he can take and mold our worthless lives and turn them into priceless works of art. If that offends you, you don't understand the gospel. If that makes you angry, you don't understand your condition before God. The reality is, all of us, we come to God completely and utterly destitute of any moral good. When you measure our thoughts and our actions, our lives, and, and see, we just want to measure the things that others see. We want to measure ourselves against everyone else. What if the measurement is against a perfect, holy God? What if the measurement that God is measuring by is absolute perfection? There is not one of us who will be able to stand under that kind of a judgment. And folks, we have to get to the place that we recognize that it's God who comes into our lives 
And he takes the mess that we are and he turns us into something beautiful. I love the way it says over in Ephesians 2 that we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus. It means that God sees you and God knows you and he knows your predicament and he knows how lost you are and the brokenness and all that exists in your life. And he comes down and he meets you there and he begins to heal what is broken. What is shattered, he begins to put back together again. And I am telling you, church, it is a beautiful thing when we understand what Jesus Christ wants to and is willing to do in our lives. We think that God performed a great work on us because we gave him such high-quality material. Folks, that's not it at all. Out of God's grace, he stooped down. And he saved the nobodies, the nothings, the ones that the world would say was junk. And you know why he did it? So that the artist and not the art would receive the honor and the glory. They must repent of their sins. If a man will not repent of his sins, he cannot find salvation. It means that once we recognize that we are in desperate need of salvation, we are able to then say to Jesus Christ, I confess my sins to you. I know that I cannot save myself. Jesus, today I give you my life. Today I ask you to forgive me. Today I ask you to change me. I can't do it. You can do it. And I believe that you died on the cross to pay the debt that I owed. You died my death for my sins. You were buried. You rose again in power and you can give me life. So Jesus, I surrender to you today. If you would pray that prayer, if you would pray to confess, pray to and believe, if you would pray and surrender your life to Christ, just like James earlier today, you could be saved. But you have to repent. And then lastly, you must believe that salvation belongs to God alone. And that he alone deserves the glory. You see, here is Christianity. It made people who were slaves. Most of this culture that the gospel went into, many millions of people were considered slaves in this culture. Yet God told them, you're not just things, but you are men and women who I love and I will make you sons and daughters of the king. It gave those who had no respect, respect. Christ gave those who had no life, eternity. And he told men and women that if they didn't matter to other men, they still mattered immensely to God. It was Jesus who looked at men in the eyes and said, in the eyes of the world, you may be nothing. He said, but to me, I'll give my life for you. As you musicians come this morning, I want to just finish with this story today about a man who was a very accomplished violinist. He was one of the best violinists in the entire world, and he had just purchased with the fortune that he had made a Stradivarius, and if you know what a Stradivarius is, there's only a handful of them that are even in the world today, and they are considered the best violins, and to find them, they are extremely expensive, certainly extremely rare, something to be cherished. 
And he told everyone, now that I've found this Stradivarius, I want to come and I want to play for all of you. And so everyone in the town gathered and he took out the violin and he began to play. And it was utterly beautiful. It was a masterpiece. When he finished playing, the people were so overwhelmed. They stood and they applauded. But to their shock and horror, you know what he did? He took that violin and he crushed it. Beating it against the ground until it was no longer playable. And you can imagine the shock and the horror on people's faces as they thought, what have you done? And he held up his hand and he said, don't worry. That wasn't the Stradivarius. And he took out the Stradivarius and he began to play it instead. And to most people that were there, they could not tell a single difference between, guess what? The Stradivarius and what was probably a very nice violin before he crushed it. You see, there's a moral to that story. And there's something that is there for all of us today. The quality of the instrument is secondary to the skill of the violinist. And what I want you to remember today and go away with, like that cheap violin, we can be instruments in the master's hands to magnify the Lord and to bless others. It doesn't matter who you were. It doesn't matter what you think of yourself and what you think you are capable of. What is Jesus saying? You're just the messenger. If I want to speak through you, he says, I can. If I want to use you, guess what? I can. If I want to bring glory to myself through your preaching, through your singing, through your teaching, through your going to the ends of the earth, across the neighborhood, to your neighbor, to your family, there are so many of you that think, you know what, I have nothing to offer God. You are exactly right. We're just violins who could never play themselves, but put them in the hands of the master. He'll make beautiful music. Father, we thank you. And Lord, you meet us here, and you speak to us, and you challenge us. Lord, we want to be bold in our witness. Lord, we want to let the gospel out of the cage. But Lord, it takes courage. And we have to face the fact that not everyone will applaud when we share the good news. Not everyone will thank us for saying what is true and right and good, but it doesn't matter, Lord Jesus. They didn't receive you. Many won't receive us. But Lord, it doesn't change the fact that the only way any man will be saved is by us having the courage to preach. So Lord, don't let us worry about the rejections. Lord, help us to realize that this isn't even about our glory or what people think of us. But Lord, we will give an account to you one day for what we did with this gift of the gospel in our personal lives, but also whether or not we shared it with others. So Lord, get us beyond saying, come to my church, come listen to our preacher. I have a great connect group or anything else. Lord, get us to the place where we can say the name of Jesus and not be ashamed because we know it's powerful. Lord, that's what will bring glory to you when it comes to Hepzibah. When we say Hepzibah, we remember that it means 
that his delight is in us. And Lord, if we want your delight to be in us, we've got to be faithful to preach Christ and him crucified. So give us courage. Today, if there's someone here like James that needs to receive you as Lord and Savior, give them courage to pray right where they are for forgiveness, to repent of their sins, to follow you, Jesus, believing that you died on the cross for their sins. If they need to come forward and have someone pray with them, Lord, as people begin to pray, I pray they'll leave their seats and they'll come forward at the beginning of this invitation, that they won't wait a second. And I can pray with them the way we prayed with James this morning. And they can know eternal life and they can be baptized and part of this body of believers. Lord Jesus, we want to see you move again. So speak to the hearts of all that are here. Challenge us, Lord, as we pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.